We're back. We're back. It's a distraction. I'm Drew. That's Roth. How you doing, Roth? I'm doing pretty good, man. How are you? I'm doing great because today our guest uh, is one of the greatest artists of all time, legendary Bob Mould, founding member of uh, Hus- Husker Du and Sugar, and a legendary solo artist in his own right. Uh, his new album, Blue Hearts, which I have heard that fucking rocks your balls off, that comes out. That came out on Friday and is available everywhere right now. And as an added treat, Bob's box set Distortion is out on October 2nd, spans both his entire solo career and his time with Sugar, and includes 24 CDs and albums in total, nearly 300 tracks, and a companion book to go with it. Bob Mould, welcome to The Distraction. It's nice to have you. Good to be here. How's everybody doing? Well, that's a tough question. Um, yeah, there's you know. a loaded question now. <laughs> I guess I, I guess I was just thinking in terms of, of is, is anybody able to recover after that first presidential oh, debate? Um, anyway. I'm hydrating. I, uh, uh, you're I hydrating. doing a lot did of meditating. You, did you say you're hydrating? Yeah, that's where it starts, man. You got to get at that level. I, I, know, didn't watch, I, I didn't watch it. I uh, At 9 o'clock, I was fucking tired, so I was like, all right, I'm going to go to bed because i don't want to watch this shit because it ain't like i was like i was gonna watch the debate and be like you know this trump guy makes some interesting points i feel like i've changed my (laughs) right right so then i was like i'm going to bed my daughter who's 14 had to watch it for school for for her government class and my son stayed up and watched it my wife stayed up all the way she watched the whole goddamn thing which i can't Uh. that would be like smoking all the cigarettes uh like in the package after your dad catches you like smoking marlboros and shit like that so I did not watch any of it. So really, I was the real winner. Of what the was incredible album. about it for me, like from reading about it, I was like, I'll get the highlights online, you know, like afterwards. Like, I'll just get a sense of like what the, the big exchanges and the big moments were. Turns out there weren't any fucking highlights. <laughs> <laughs> did you watch it, Bob? I, uh, yes, I, I, I endured the entire thing. Uh, man. Uh, yeah, no, nothing new. Just a lot of reinforcements of, uh, of problems that we knew existed already. Well, to that end, I wanted to ask you, um, because you're living in San Francisco now, San Francisco mm-hmm. proper. Am I right? I don't, I yep. don't need your, yeah, center, yeah. Dead center in the middle of town. Yeah. All right. So you, you spent before that, you spent four years living in Berlin. That's where you recorded sunshine rock. You came back to America to live in San Francisco. So I'm not joking. When I ask you, do you regret coming back here? Uh, no, I mean, San Francisco's a, you know, San Francisco was home for me starting in 2009. I left DC and moved out here and, uh, you know, I kept my place here while I went to Berlin for the four years. So it was, so it's sort of nice to be back, um, to be back in this America. I don't know, man, this is, right. this is, this is, this is the hard part because after, after four years of seeing what you know, a, a modern democracy looks like and how people operate and how, you know, the voices of dissent are tolerated and sort of encouraged. Uh, yeah, to come back to this was nuts. What made you want to come back here? Uh, well, I, I mean, I came back in late November to get ready for holidays and touring that I had before recording Blue Hearts at the beginning of this year. And then, you know, March, you know, in March, the pandemic hit and all of a sudden I'm like, uh, I don't know if it makes sense to keep an apartment in a country that I can't go back to. Right. Right. (laughs) (laughs) So, so that was sort of, uh, yeah, thanks. Uh, thanks for, thanks for ending that for me too there, Mr. President. Um, yeah. (laughs) How's your, how's your air? Are you able to go outside at all or is this just staring at walls now? Uh, it, well, I mean, the fires have been terrible. I mean, you know, we, you know, fire season is usually later in October through a little bit of November. And then, you know, we get the coastal rains and, you know, and then it's sort of over, but this year it started early. The air is, was terrible back, you know, two weeks ago. Was it when the, with the orange skies that everybody saw? Right. Yeah. Yeah, we had a, we had a we had a we had a you know we had an episode like that a couple of days ago when the new fires up in Napa started, but uh, it's it, you know it's not too bad. It's it, it it was terrible today, not so bad yet. So I think we're okay for today. I had a friend living there, and uh, it was a few weeks ago during the Orange Skies phase, and he was like, "Well, you know, there's all this uh, sort of choking air in my car. I should I should put my windows down overnight." So the car can keep air out. And he went back the next morning. His car was filled with ash. So he was yep. like, 
He's like, well, shit. Do you ever miss <laughs> metaphors? Do you ever, do you ever like miss when, when things used to not be 100% exactly what they fucking are all the time? Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, the, uh, the, the, the ash is, uh, the ash is problematic. It, it is everywhere. And it, and it, it just, you know, it's like the ash is one thing, but then the particulates that come in later that you can't see that make the sky orange, those are the ones that are a little bit more, a little bit long lasting as far as uh, getting down deep in your lungs. But anyways, yeah, here we are. <laughs> does, uh, does San Francisco itself feel any different uh, now? I mean, obviously the environmental thing and the fact that we're fucked is, uh, well, the fact <laughs> Not that we're ideal. fucked has, has been a constant state of, of, American status for for four years now, but does the city itself of San Francisco does it feel different to you at all <clears throat> now that you've come back after four years? Well, I mean, there's a number of things happening. I think you know, there's there's you know, there's there's a narrative that I'm not sure is completely accurate of, you know, will San Francisco survive? I think you know, it's that same sort of Manhattan narrative, you know, and uh, of course, yes. everything will survive. Um, you know, it's just feels sort of like a real estate opportunity kind of thing, like you know, shuffling, you know, deck chairs or something. Um, You know, I live, you know, just above the Castro and my neighborhood's been pretty wrecked because, you know, it's sort of a social hub and entertainment hub. There's a lot of bars and restaurants and, you know, things are coming back online. People are outside eating, you know, we built parklets so that, you know, the gay bars, you know, people can at least, you know, get sort of near each other to have a drink with masks on. But, you know, people have been really good here. You know, our our rates of transmission and, you know, infection are really low. So I'm sort of happy about that because we're all sort of believing in science and doing the right thing and wearing masks all the time. That's great. Yeah, but it, it's, um, I mean, it's real, it's real, real tough to watch all of the, you know, sort of the legacy LGBT businesses are having a really hard time. You know, bars are closing for good. And, you know, that just, it's, it's tough. The small business thing, you know, is so important in San Francisco because we've had these regulations about formula retail not being allowed in the city. Like if it's, if you have over 10 locations, like a, you know, like a drugstore chain or a bank chain or something, you can't open in certain neighborhoods. So where I live is almost all independent businesses run by people I know. And we're just trying to do what we can to keep them alive. Oh, so it was. So the the purpose of the law was that <clears throat> we don't want the only thing open to be mass chains that essentially starve out small businesses that were already struggling. Is that correct? That is correct. And and what and what happens with that? And this is something that I remember from New York City, and it's something that I remember from you know urban studies in college is when you have formula chains, it's usually people working at those stores who don't live in the neighborhood. They come in from other places. So they, they haven't made a personal investment in whether the sidewalk is safe out in front of the business. Right. So, yeah, so we're, you know, we're sort of feeling it now. There's, you know, a lot of, a lot of people that have been displaced for one reason or another. And, you know, they're sort of just hanging around out in front of the abandoned pottery barn, which makes it, you know, really, you know, it's tough for everybody involved, but I think San Francisco's resilient i think we're doing what we can yeah but i think it seems like yeah it seems like that's i'm sorry ralph i didn't mean to talk go ahead about man you got it well i feel like that's a very good common sense sort of thing that i wish was you know universal across the country of course it's not everything's been disparate and patchwork and there's only just like you know sort of clusters of places that have their shit together and the rest of it's just uh monkey fucking all over the place like when i went to I went to a resort town to visit my parents and we all did hard quarantine beforehand. And we went to a resort town in Maine because the podcast always comes back to Maine for yeah. some goddamn reason. <laughs> yeah, but we'll the, need, we'll the, need your lobster takes. Uh, the, town, the town had in the, ta- in the middle of the town, that's not a big town. They had a little, you know, almost like a little free library with masks, with free masks. So you could just, if you didn't have a mask on, you could grab a mask and there was a hand sand pump and you just had that. And I was like, I was like, all right, I know this is a, you know, I know this is not, you know, New York City or something like that, but how the fuck does every town not just have this? How fucking expensive would it be to do that? I know. I know. It's just, it's the little things, you know, the common sense things that it seems like, you know, in, in the, in the recent past, America's forgotten a lot of little things like, you know, we talk about, you know, you know, the police and how do we start reforming, you know, 
the you know the police system and people ask me that and i just say well it would be nice if the you know the beat cops actually lived in the neighborhoods that they patrol because then they're going to understand what they're looking for and what people in the neighborhood are like again living in the castro it's like it's you know the 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 beat cops are very sensitive to the unique community that we have and i think that should go for everywhere so uh, just a little aside that i wanted to talk no I, I think it fits into like the, what has been at least from the new york perspective where i am that is so infuriating about all of this is there's a sense of beyond the cop stuff which is what you said is obviously true but like it you know you give it a couple of generations to metastasize and they start to think of themselves as an occupying force not even just like in the community but explicitly sort of designed to suppress mm-hmm. you know what's there but there's this sense of abandonment, uh, you know, at every level. I mean, obviously, the the national one is the most striking and the most sort of heartbreaking, just in the sense that, you know, it's not that that Trump hasn't fucked up managing COVID because he absolutely has. But mostly, I think he hasn't really tried. You know, he hasn't talked. He hasn't talked about the wildfires. It's not like an issue for him. Because, I mean, he is not just because he's in this media bubble where they don't exist and where the only thing that matters is, like, Peter Stroke and Lisa Page and all these, like, (laughs) fucking FBI C-team people that, like, every Republican knows what day they were born and their fucking star sign, but normal people have no idea who they are. That like, But beyond that, there's this sense of, like, just how much work has to be done. Like, how much, to a certain extent, like... It's not just a matter of like finishing the job or improving the job. It's a matter of like starting in earnest. Yes, yes, indeed. And I, th- you know, and I, th- I think, you know, I, I'm hopeful that now we, you know, now that all the ugliness and all the the divisiveness and, you know, now definitely all the uh, all the underpinnings of the you know sort of white supremacist racism vibe that's coming out of the White House. Now that that's on full display, now we sort of identified the work. You know, and, yeah. and, and it and it really needs to, you know, it's that shining a light on on things that, you know, that you're like, oh, don't give it don't don't give it any mind. Well, no, we actually have to give it mind. And, and I think now with like, you know, with Black Lives Matter and, you know, people sort of looking at justice and law and order and how we have to we really do have to readdress everything from scratch. It's because if if any of those other ideas were good before, they would have worked and they haven't. And. Yeah, we're at that point. But yeah, so so weird, right? To have, uh, you know, imagine my shock coming back to America in late November and seeing, you know, re-entering the 24-hour news as entertainment lifestyle and, you know, my head exploding and writing this record. And then here we are. I'm like, wow. That's something that I thought was so like, I mean, obviously, it's it's the first line of the first single from your new album. But the idea of like, oh, yeah, the, but like the extent of like seeing this shit again and never thinking that you would see this shit again. Like, obviously, you know, you're speaking on a, a different sort of spectrum and a different sort of, you know, continuum of stuff. But there's, you know, in some ways it's, you know, this massive plague that is denied and abetted by reactionaries in power. Like there are, there are commonalities. And yet, like. How different does it feel now? Like, not just coming back from Germany, but the idea of, like, I don't think that I've ever felt as exhausted and overwhelmed. And I'm not somebody that watches a lot of cable news. It's just, there's so much. Yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, the song American Crisis was me drawing parallels between, you know, being a young gay man certain of my sexuality, completely unclear as to my sexual identity, being told by the moral majority, the evangelicals that got Reagan elected, that this was God's punishment for my behavior and that I should be quarantined or tattooed or whatever. And, you know, I, I watched, you know, those first years where the Reagan administration could not even say the word AIDS. And... I watched people in America for, you know, a couple years be so uncertain. Oh my God, is it a drinking fountain? Is it in the air? Is it, if somebody looks at me, you know, so, you know, I understand that, you know, pandemics are confusing at first. So I always tried to somewhere in the back of my mind, give a little benefit of the doubt as to how people might be handling this. But man, I mean, this is like gross mismanagement now. Yeah. You know, it, it's really for months. 
and it you know uh, you know being part of a previously incredibly marginalized group which is now sort of sometimes mainstream when it's when it's you know <laughs> when it suits the purposes of people that want them to be mainstream yeah, well yeah I didn't want to say it, but yeah you know what I mean and yeah. I, and, and, and I look at other you know other groups that you know are told that they are less than and I'm like you know this is this has been happening forever and I empathize like I don't fully understand Black Lives Matter I, you know I I can't you know I can I you know when I was 22 years old I could you know I could I could pass a straight you know that's a whole different thing right yeah it, it, so but but I you know it's just sort of I was trying to throw up this flare like hey I think this is coming again and that song and that song's two and a half years old so it wasn't written in reaction to anything that happened in the last eight months I mean that was sort of like uh, this is, you know, this is sort of totalitarianism 101 here, folks. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's amazing. Cause the song, um, it's cause, cause when I first heard the song, I didn't hear the lyrics because traditionally, uh, when you produce an album, your, you, you tend to put your, you tend to, I, the word Barry is wrong. You tend to, you tend to mix your voice low. So that's equal to the guitars. It's essentially a guitar in yes. of itself. So I didn't, I didn't hear the lyrics clearly. And then I saw the lyric video. And I was like, holy shit. Because to me, it was the most explicit uh, protest song you had ever made. And it was, yeah. <clears throat> it was actually, it was odd. Like, I, I, know, I know you were singing with a great amount of anger, but there was also this other side to it where I felt like, okay, Bob has already survived this bullshit once already. Maybe that should give me hope or confidence that we can all survive this particular bullshit but do you feel that way or do you feel like no i feel hopeless that this is happening again oh no no we're going we're going to win this thing in november we're going to take charge in january we the democrats we the american you know american citizens who believe in democracy we're going to win this thing in november we're going to take charge of it in january and we're not going to look back you know my you know it's just going to be Thanks. Thanks a lot for wrecking our planet and our lives, Republicans. Now your next job is to go find wherever the Whigs are hiding. So, <laughs> you, know, it's, 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 you know, that's that's what we're going to be doing in January, and it's going to take years to get to put this thing back together. But I have a lot of I have a lot of hope. I have a lot of hope in the youth of America. I think word travels fast. Information is available. Uh, I think the young folks have just had it. They're looking, they're just looking at people like me going, what, what the fuck did you do? Yeah. <laughs> you know, and I'm like, wait a minute. I think I'm on the correct side of this, you know? So, you know, there was a part of me that was, you know, sort of that, you know, with American crisis and with blue hearts in general, it's like, uh, I'd like to go on the record with my thoughts, please. Lest there be any doubt when history looks back and says, what did you do? And I'm like, oh, well, I just sat around and celebrated my career or something, you know? Yeah. No, not really. It's just, it, it's that kind of, it's that kind of moment. And I think we're going to, I think, I think Americans will rise to the occasion. I, I just, how much, you can't, we can't live like this. I, you know what? I, I feel fucking great. No, you said that. I feel, <laughs> that's the best I've felt. That's not, and it's like, I already felt good. I was talking to Bob Mould, but I was like, Bob Mould just fucking made me want to run through a brick wall. Yeah, get no, and, and that buck and up he, speech. He didn't even need a guitar to do it. Unbelievable. <laughs> uh, did it, when you, when you record the album, because the album is, is fucking great lyrically. And then it has, it has the fantastic contrast that you've had throughout your career. With you know where where the music's very heavy, uh, and but or I should say your lyrics are very heavy, but then the music is also very loud and aggressive, but then explodes in this sort of beautiful uh, distorted melody, and so there's that great contrast that I've always loved about it, and to that end, it always feels very cathartic to listen to your music. Did it feel cathartic to for you to make this album? Do you feel better now that you've made it than before you made it? Absolutely. Uh, like I said, American Crisis two and a half years ago fell out of my head in five minutes onto a page, and I did not look once at editing a single stitch of it. Uh, you know, and when the song started coming, when Forecast of Rain made itself known, I was just like, oh, yeah, it's, 
you know, it's sort of that 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 question to the evangelicals. What do you know? Is there is there a place for me at the table at this ta- this awful table that you're setting for? For all of us, you know, to, to, like, will you please pass the mayo? Yes, please. Yes, please. The Dijonais. Uh, <laughs> you know, when you're feeling risque. Um, it's, <laughs> Is that even allowed? When, yeah. I don't, I don't know. Um, but wait, there was Dijonais involved. Um, <laughs> it, uh, you know, I, yeah, the catharsis. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, Look, when, you know, the methodology for this record, you know, I was writing a lot of guitar music over in Berlin. I got back here. Those words started falling out. I, I said to John and Jason, let's make, let's make that punk rock record we've been talking about making for six years. I think now is the time. And we just went in there and, you know, and this was, you know, my preparation for recording this album was being on the road for three weeks, playing some of these songs solo acoustic and explaining to people before the songs like look you know i feel like a little bit of a weird survivor here and i'm just trying to i'm going to try to wake you all up a little bit and tell you this thing's starting to go off the rails and we really need to get out and vote so to you know to get that validation from people night in night out for three weeks and then to get on to get on a plane go to chicago meet up with john and jason and bang this record out in two weeks you know, I mean, we we did our job as a band in four days. Then those guys went home, and I just started screaming my head off as much as I could every day until until it was done. And yeah, it you know, I think with in terms of methodology, that idea of write, writing songs, writing very simple, direct, blunt songs in a hurry, test driving them in front of people, and then immediately going in and recording them. That's that methodology. The last time I used that was in 91, getting ready for the Sugar, Copper, Blue, and Beaster. And that used to be my MO with Husker Du. I mean, that was a band that was always at least one album ahead of, of the recorded work as we toured. Yeah, that's something also- that's interesting that you'd mentioned the, the touring stuff too, because so many, I mean, the people that I know that, that play music for a living, but also just in general, like you're not the, the only artist that it seems like has this process where it works itself out on stage and in terms of like seeing how people do and don't respond to what you're putting down. That's obviously missing now. Yeah. Right. This moment it's missing, but to, but to go and and for me, it had been missing for decades. You know, I was writing record, you know, I was doing make a record, go out and tour, take a break, write a record, record a record, go out and tour, take a break. So to, you know, to take new material out on the road and hold it up against everybody's favorite songs. I mean, that's a real good sort of test for the, 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 you know, for the new material. It's like, does it hold up against Hoover Dam or see a little light or, you know, your favorite thing or what, you know, whatever songs people like. It's a it's, risk. It's almost like workshopping uh, stand up jokes uh, fresh in front of a crowd. Totally, totally. And, you know, and I, you know, the, the beauty of being not obscure, but less than famous is that I've got a wonderfully supportive audience, and when I let them take a look at new stuff, they're really they're really nice about it. Maybe maybe they were just saying, "Yeah, go with that angry political stuff," just just to be nice. But I actually I think they were I think they were telling me true. So I actually remember um, I saw you in the late '90s in New York when you were doing solo shows. You were doing solo uh, solo acoustic shows and solo electric shows, and that was when you tested out um, some of the songs that ended up being on modulate. Uh, mm-hmm. So like Sunday, Sunset Safety Glass and stuff like that. And I remember hearing those, and that was before the album came out. And I was like, oh, shit. Because you had, I remember you had the um, the backing tracks to go along with you. And, and oh, my like God, the, yes. <laughs> and the second Sunset Safety Glass came on in the, in the bar. I remember it was, it, was a, it was a bar you played at. It was, and it was, in, it was in Chelsea. I cannot remember the name of the bar. But um, the, second, the second, the sharp sort of... Uh, the first sharp note of Sunset Safety Glass came out. Like it literally pierced my ears. I was like, oh shit. And uh, I was like, I, I started doing like the white man's overbite and all that stuff. <laughs> and, uh, and it is, it's a cool, it's a cool way of, of testing it out. It's risky because you're not sure, you're not necessarily certain how it's going to be received when you do it. I mean, I, I, like you said, you had a, uh, a very supportive audience, no matter, no matter where you go, but there's still a bit of risk involved. Do you ever get a little bit of trepidation? 
Um, yeah, but I mean, that's part of the process. I like, that's the fun of it. I mean, it's, I, I'm usually pretty confident in my work. I mean, sometimes there'll be a song or two be like, yeah, I don't know about that one. And, you know, in the writing process, there's a lot of things that don't leave the, uh, don't leave my notebook and they never make it to a stage. But if, if I, you know, if I'm, I, and I remember that period, I had, I had totally spaced out on the, uh, pre-modulate track shows. Um, <laughs> yeah, they, it, uh, that was a bit of a, I wonder what people are going to think, but yeah, I think that's the, that's the beauty of making, making, making art and, and trying things out in front of people. It's sort of sort of raw and sort of you get that feedback and then you you move forward you make you make alterations or or you just keep barreling ahead well that was also um a, a transition for you because it was it was 1998 i think i have the year right dog and pony show came out and you said this could be my last electric record um last one i toured the band because by then you would start doing blow off and uh and later on you would uh, adapt the loud bomb uh uh, DJ moniker, mm-hmm. and you start getting into that phase of music with with the seeming intent you would not return to rock. So then my question to you would be, uh, I know you're glad to return to rock, and I believe it was I believe it was playing with Dave Grohl uh, once that sort of spurred you back in that direction. Um, well, actually, what had happened was, you know, in 98, uh, I, I, I was 19 years into my professional career, and it was a singular career as a, as a rock guitar singer-songwriter in power trios. And, you know, that life uh, was a wonderful life, but I felt like, you know, I really wanted to build, uh, you know, sort of build that gay sexual identity that I mentioned that I didn't have in the 80s. And, you know, being in a van with guys in a rock band and, and doing that circuit, it's, it's, it's my main, it's been my main focus in life, but I wanted to take that break. And it was in earnest to step away and spend time, you know, in the West village, spend time in Chelsea, you know, start integrating into the community, you know, giving more of my time and, and energy to causes and, uh, yeah, so mod- so I so in two thousand two I put out Modulate and Loud Bomb, you know, these electronic records, and a, and then in two thousand five put out what was supposed to be the companion guitar record to those. It was an album called Body of Song, and that was the period where I came back to rock touring. Uh, I was living in Washington D.C. I was friends with Brendan Canty, who was a drummer in a band called Rights of Spring, and then in F- a band called Fugazi, which I think most people know. <laughs> A band and called he, Fugazi. And, and, <laughs> yeah, Fugazi. And then, oh, and I've then, heard of them. Yeah, they've, they've been around a little while. But uh, Brendan said, "Hey, come on, let's 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 play for this. Let's let's do a three piece for this. Uh, you know, this freedom to marry. This you know, uh, gay gay marriage equality thing. You know, like a fundraiser benefit thing at the Nine Thirty Club in DC. And we did that, and that was great. And then a couple of years later, you know, I was hanging. You know, actually got." was doing a, another show with, uh, I think it was the 30th anniversary show at the 930 Club, and Dave Grohl was there, and that was the first time he and I went in a room and talked about stuff, which was great. No, I-, I remember, and then you ended up playing on on Dear Rosemary. I remember that that track, because I, I was I listening to that album, and I did not know you were on it, and I was like, I think that's Bob singing on that track. And then I <laughs> went, I'm like, I was like, hey, that is Bob, holy shit. This is my favorite Foo Fighters song now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that was it was that was a very that was a very that was a very generous offer that Dave gave to me. You know, I just said, you know, we'd love you to come down and and help out with this song. I, I mean, you know, I've 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 been around Dave. You know, we never really sat and chewed the fat about stuff in the '90s, but we we'd been around each other at, at you know on the festival circuit. I think in '91 actually in in Europe, but. Uh, yeah, I mean, and, and you know, Pat, you know, Pat Smear, I'm such a big Germs fan. You know, I love Dave's work. I mean, obviously Nirvana and all that, you know, that history, you know, coming out of Husker Du and, you know, sort of groups like the Pixies sort of, you know, carrying that tradition and then Nirvana sort of, you know, really bringing it to the mainstream. Uh, so, I mean, it was a, it was a natural fit and, uh, you know, Dave, Dave's generosity continued after that, you know, having me come out and, and DJ on some of their festival shows and get up and play with them for a couple songs. 
which was funny because I was like, Dave, can I, I got to do something all day. Like, I don't want to be the guy that just comes up and plays a song during the encore. Like, <laughs> right. Yeah. Can I, can, can I sort of earn my keep in some other way? <laughs> so that's how the DJing thing came up. But yeah, he, he was very, very generous with spreading the, spreading the word. And then, you know, in 2011, there was the Disney hall, the documentary, see a little light, you know, the, the Disney hall tribute show to the songbook, And Dave was a big part of that. And then, you know, that sort of set up this, I guess what people are say return to form or like renaissance that happened in the last decade. And, you know, getting together with, with, with Jason Arducey, John Worcester, 2012, we made the album Silver Age. And, you know, now we're on to our fifth album with Merge in this configuration, Blue Hearts. And it's been a, been a good run. And the records seem to keep getting a little bit better with each one, which it, surprises me as much as anybody else <laughs> no they're 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 all they're all fucking great and i wanted to ask you a little question because i i feel like um i feel like this is your favorite band you've played with yep. but i didn't want to i didn't want to put those words in your mouth is it yeah absolutely um you know who's do was a great first band you know you know grade school you know jam bands that i tried to put together notwithstanding you know who's right. you know that's my first real band where i actually got paid cash money to do something for eight years uh you know a real amazing amazing ride that was i mean you know that you know for you know for younger folks that you know the 1980s we still believe that music could change the world and you know husker do and hundreds of bands all over the you know north america and all over the world you know set out to create these new communities of music and alternative venues fanzines our own form of propaganda and you know there was no room for us in the mainstream so music can change the world it still can but that was a great first band you know sugar was a sugar was a great experience a very you know commercially successful band but in terms of you know, kinship and performance and, you know, real just camaraderie. Uh, working with John and Jason is clearly, you know, my favorite setup. And and it seems like people are starting now, you know, people, people are like, ah, oh, this band is as good as anything he's ever done. So I'll refrain from saying that it's better than anything else, but it's certainly my favorite situation. This you, is, uh, you, I want to ask oh, one question ahead, if it's all right. So this is notionally a sports podcast. Um, I'm not going to ask you for like NBA playoff <laughs> takes, but there's a lot of people on our staff that would be mad at me if I did not ask. Uh, first of all, are you still watching and caring about wrestling and who are you caring about the most right now? Uh, professional wrestling? Yes. Yeah, I mean, I'm a, I'm a lifelong fan. Um, I was it, I, I managed to get into the business for about seven months at the end of 1999, I got uh, called up by Time Warner, Turner, AOL, World Championship Wrestling to come in and be ostensibly a creative consultant, which was sort of trying to help with philosophy and, you know, guiding the product and, uh, you know, coming up with character ideas and stuff like that. And that was a, that was a great, uh, you know, not only did I get a look behind the curtain, but I was actually sitting behind the curtain at Gorilla, sort of running the live shows uh, on a headset, you know, telling the refs to tell people to do this and do that and speed up and slow down. And we got to go to commercial, hurry up and all that stuff. But uh, these days, yeah, I still I still follow it. Um, I guess my preferred wrestling universe so to speak to to be in is a company called New Japan Pro Wrestling. Nice. They're, the connoisseur's they, choice. That makes sense. Uh, yeah, I mean, I've been a lot. I, I I went to New Japan shows in the '90s. I've been to Corican Hall. I mean, I've done the whole the whole bit. You know, it's uh, it's a great product for anybody who who you know sort of longs for the old days of you know action packed professional wrestling that looks believable with winners and losers and consequences. Yeah, it's a it's a cool product. You know, can I go back for a second? Because I'm going to ask you a total noob question. You got I did not realize so. The ref had an earpiece, and you're talking to the ref's earpiece, and they're essentially coordinating the bout? Uh, yeah, I mean, everybody knows how much time they have from start to finish. Everybody knows how the match will end. Uh, but sometimes guys get a little bit lost, and they start freelancing, and you have to tell the ref, to, uh, let's, uh, let's get them on track. And in pro wrestling, there's a thing called the go-home cue. And that's worked out between the referee, the agent, and the participants. And that would be like if somebody says their go home is two minutes, that means those last two minutes are strictly 
worked out ahead of time. So they get into a situation, you know, it might be a ref bump and then the heel sort of gets up and his friend throws a chair in and then he goes to hit the baby face with the chair, but the baby face gives him a low blow, hits him with the chair. You throw the chair out. The ref gets picked back up. One, two, three. Oh my God. How did that happen? That'll be your two. That would be the two minutes where I tell the ref it's time to go home. And then he, and I say, give me an affirmative. The ref touches his earpiece. He covers his mouth. He leans into the guys, and they're usually on the mat in a in a rest hold, or you know, it's the end of the heat sequence where the where the heel is on top, and then they start their two minutes. What's yeah. crazy about this? I saw that works. I have no, yeah, just a simple example uh, for everybody that everybody will understand, of course. The, but I, I I understood all that. No, that was I, cool. that's what I was going to say. I understand <laughs> it too, and I've never watched wrestling, but I've edited enough of it at this point. The different writers on it that like. Not only do I I know the general broad strokes, I think I have opinions about something that I've never seen, which is like the last stage of like connoisseur brain death, where you're like, <laughs> you only read reviews of things. And so you're like, no, you're wrong about that, about like, whatever, some Abbas Kiristami movie that like has never been released here. Yes. But it's, which is whatever. That's, so that's how that's I am very- with like walking by people on the street wearing like a young guns t- or young bucks t-shirt, and I'm like, oh yeah, like actually I don't know anything about them, but I know what your shirt means. Yeah, being be the elite. Yeah, yeah. That's, <laughs> that's that's very on. It's very online for me to like instantly. If I even if it even if I agree with somebody, if somebody's like, oh well, uh, you know, mayo's trash. I hate mayo. Like I'll instant like if it's if it's a friend of mine, I'll just be like, hey, wait a second. Like if like if they have like a really strong take, I I my first instinct is to counter it instead of agreeing with it because agreeing with it's no fun. Yeah, so. <laughs> what a great way to lose your mind. Uh, we'll, we'll gotta take a break right here. We're gonna come right back in a couple seconds with Bob Mold. And we're back with Bob Mold. Ain't that something? I wanted to ask. All right, you shot three videos uh, from Blue Hearts Warrior in Quarantine. You did. Forecaster Range at American Crisis, and you did uh, uh, Siberian Butterfly. They're all filmed using ISO shots. Was staging it complicated in any other regards? Like, were they? Did you? Were you at home when you filmed these? Yeah, everything uh, for American Crisis. Everybody was at home, and I just gave John and Jason direction. Just you know, set the camera up like this. Do this, and you know that was just sort of uh, everybody lip syncing in a in a place on, you know, wherever they live and, uh, sent it to the art director for merge records in Milwaukee and said, let's do it like this. You know, this would be my ideas, you know, and, and, you know, the execution was great. Forecast of rain was a little more of that. Let's try to build in a bit of a story, you know, let's use, you know, let's sort of almost do like a Dora, the Explorer kind of where's Waldo (laughs) business with religion and then with Butterfly, the only, you know, I knew I was going to, you know, do like a rock guitar solo moment. I didn't know, I didn't know that it was going to turn into the NBC, the more, you know, you know, rainbow star <laughs> logo thing. Although I did suggest that we should do that. But the only direction I gave John and Jason on Butterfly was, so during the guitar solo, I need you guys to shoot a look as if you would shoot me that look on stage, like, what the F are you doing? <laughs> like as, you know, as the whole thing turns, you know, Lucky Charms, Gem and the Holograms. So right. that, that was the only little bit where you see John make that exasperated face and Jason sort of looks over and chuckles. That was, that was the, that was the depth of the complexity of my, you know, direction on the video. Have you been able to play live at all during the pandemic? Nope. Not one miss bit. it. Uh, uh, especially with this album. Yeah. I mean, if an album was ever built for the stage, this blue hearts was it. Yeah. We miss it terribly. Not to mention that's actually the only real means of support that I have, you know, in terms of paying my bills. So, right. Uh, yeah, that, that makes it tricky. Uh, the, the, uh, the hard part is, you know, I, we keep trying to make plans, for more touring and until somebody actually gives America a plan, I, I can't even make a plan. Uh, yeah. I, I miss that idea of community and sharing and, you know, especially in light of, you know, 
the way politics are right now and how we all really have to be engaged and we all have to get out and vote. I mean, I was looking at this record as a, as a, a call to arms. I was looking at this tour as a way to get out there in front of people and reinforce the message of the, of the record is we really have to participate. We really have to make some change, you know, was trying to line up, you know, voter groups to come to the shows and make sure that everybody was registered, just, you know, doing the simple, community-based things that we, we, we all should be doing, uh, you know, all that's gone now and, and, you know, it all has to wait. And, you know, the only good news is I hope that if, you know, when we come back to going into a room and singing together at the top of our lungs, that it will be a celebration. You know, that's, that's, that's what I'm trying to keep in the front of my mind is, as you know, I, I watch the calendar fly by. Uh, can you play abroad? Is it possible? Um, I know that they, uh, you know, Germany did a, did a thing where they had, you know, three nights of a con, you know, three nights of concerts in the same room doing three different scientific models where one was, you know, complete social distancing in the venue, everybody with masks. And then I think the next one was a higher capacity with some masks. And then the third show I think was wide open. And that was about four weeks ago. And I think they said they were going to need six weeks to see what the results, you you know, what look like. So maybe in a couple of weeks, we'll see what that tells us. But I mean, realistically, we're at least a, I think we're at least a year away Every, everywhere. I mean, Britain's going back into lockdown this weekend. Uh, you know, Spain is having a hard time. Germany's being very cautious all of a sudden. They've, they've got an uptick. So. Yeah, I don't know. You know, I'm 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 the last to go back to work. You know, uh, uh, Jason uh, was staging or is still doing backyard concerts in Evanston during the pandemic, uh, which I think he's been enjoying because I follow mm-hmm. him on Twitter. He seems to be enjoying it. He loves. Did he ever it. did he ever invite you to do one, or did you ever consider doing one? You'd have to drive to fucking Illinois. I guess I would probably have to drive. I mean, people are flying again. I mean, if I had to get on a plane to go to work, I probably would. I would rather not because we still don't know that much about what's really happening with this, you know, with coronavirus. You know, now it's you know once we all agree that it's airborne, maybe then we can start dealing with it properly. <laughs> Uh, right. I mean, it's just like, what the fuck? Um, but I, I, yeah, Jason loves that. Um, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm content right now just to sit tight and think about, you know, whether it's some kind of series of streaming shows, you know, where I'm just, you know, solo electric, whether it's trying to get the band together to do a streaming show or whether it's just, you know, sitting, sitting tight until I can go back to the presentation that I think suits my work the best. No, I'm you know, still batting it around, but I, I do miss it terribly. Have you been playing at home? A little bit. I've mostly been campaigning the record, which takes up a lot of time each day and it takes up a lot of uh, emotional space. Um, the last time that I've have felt this exhausted at the end of a press day you know, and and there's been a lot of press days. Is the uh, Beaster record in 1993? It was a record that you know took on religion a little bit, but it was a really heavy record. And at the time, I told people, you know, this is a lot like the Salem witch trials. You know, where like the mother and daughter are reenacting, you know, the Salem witch trials, and the the actual daughter is telling the actual mother, "You're a witch." You know, it's 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 sort of how I feel at the end of the day every day. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. So I'm sort of, I'm a little bit wiped out by it. Having said that, you know, I'm obviously keeping notes. I'm, I'm, I'm playing instruments, but am I, am I working in earnest? Mm, I'm pretty much still in campaign mode right now. And, I, and I'm hoping that, well, I mean, I'm not hoping that people forget about the record, but I'm hoping that there's a moment when talking about Blue Hearts and talking about the box set and 30 years of work, you know, when that, when that starts to, cool down then i'll i'm sure i'll see my moment to 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 look for the next tent pole well i i i'm sorry i i i should have been i should have been clearer have you just been playing songs from that album or any songs you've written before 
just to play, so you can just play, not not to work, but just to play. Oh, just to pl- play, play like like oh, I'm gonna sit down and just play for twenty minutes for fun. Yeah, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I yeah, I have to do that. That's Got yeah, it. that 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 is that that and uh, that and my my you know improvised home gym workouts and and rehabbing my bad shoulder and and arm. Yeah, I have to do that every day. Uh, what's, like, wrong that, your sh- what's wrong with your shoulder? Uh, 40 years of putting a 12 pound piece of wood on a strap and carrying it around. Yeah. 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 It gets you, it gets you after a while. That's like Slayer guy. He had to stop banging his head because he banged his head so much. He got to get neck fusion surgery. Oh my God. Oh my God. I was like, okay, that makes sense. He rocked so hard. His body could not withstand the rocking. Well, and, and, you know, and I mean, you know, not to, not to be a downer, but I mean, look at, look, you know, look at, look at someone like Prince and what he put himself through for decades. I mean that. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that touring that's so depressing is making guys be out. I mean, just even for fucking Prince or for like Tom Petty, like people that are legends and have this huge back catalog still have to be on the road like 200 days a year so they can make a living. It's just depressing, <laughs> like. Well, yeah, yeah. That's I don't know if we're going to put that toothpaste back in the tube uh, with, yeah. the stream, with the streaming services. Right. I think this is where we're at now. But, but yeah, but I mean the physicality of the of the road, and and you know I wish I could say that it gets easier as you get older, but it doesn't. And you know we were joking about hydrating before. A lot of people ask me like, "What's your secret?" And I'm like, "It's water and it's sleep." Those are the two things that you need to get on a, on a daily basis. And as far as, you know, as far as performing and touring as we get older, I mean, I don't have a problem going on a stage and doing what I have done my whole life. It's the recovery time. Yeah, that's the part. We're finally into the part of the podcast because this is, as I said, notionally a sports podcast, secretly a podcast about aging. And that is a hundred percent where Drew and I wind up with all of this is, you know, it's not like a question of staying up till two in the morning. It's a question of what tomorrow is like. And like, that's how you find out that you're old or that you are not whatever, not old, but like not 25. And that is, yeah, the body, the body only recovers, but so quickly as, 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 as time goes on. Yeah. But it's, but, but, you know, we still love it, right? We still do it. We still stay, we still stay up till four in the morning or we still go, you know, we still go out clubbing all the time in Berlin or whatever, whatever we all do to, you know, whatever we all do or did to have fun. Yeah. I was thinking about that when you were talking about shows and missing playing them and, you know, just in terms of missing going to them, that, that experience of being sort of not just with a group of people, you know, experiencing art and experiencing this sort of fellowship and all that, all of which is obviously real and important. But that feeling of of coming back and being like, yeah, I, like, I still go to shows, like I'm going to shows, <laughs> I'm enjoying this experience, like, I'm, it's not done for me yet. Like that closing of the space that, you know, we can fill in the city down around like, you know, the people that we live with or the people that are in the apartment or nearest to us is like a very, very difficult thing to, to kind of get past. I'm glad you're able to find catharsis in, in writing through it too. I've found it very difficult to sort of feel as attached to the world, especially, you know, with fewer, when the marches were happening, that, that was good. Yes. But yeah, it can be a very difficult time to do any of that. Yeah. And it's, and I think, you know, and I think sort of a side note is that, you know, two things that frustrate me is, you know, there was that moment a few months ago where there was, you know, sort of, you know, mud show artists who were, you know, going out there and putting people at risk. Yeah. You know, just where it's sort of like, come on, man, you're, you're going to make this harder for all of us by doing these, you know, by doing these, you know, bike rallies or whatever it is. It's just like, stop already. Didn't, you know, didn't you go away already once? Oh, oh it, was, it was Smash Mouth. Smash Mouth had yeah. a fucking gotcha. And yeah. fucking great, and great White got to do it. They got two bites at that apple of really badly harming people while playing the fucking <laughs> yeah. song from 1990, the one song right. that they know. Right, that's, right. Uh, you just shake, you shake your head. And then the second one is, you know, like, you know, religion and, you know, sort of these, you know, sort of renegade churches that, you know, think that they're above, you know, above public safety and health and the law. It's like, Okay, yeah, I get it. We all want to be in our our particular rooms and sing together and do stuff together. But like, 
why do you think that you're absolutely entitled? Why do you get some kind of dispensation? You know, why are you creating some kind of like false equivalency between, you know, churches and, you know, church and we should, you know, we, religion is always protected. It's like, you know, fucking rock music's always protected too there, motherfucker. Yeah, it's infuriating, man. Because this is, I know. And it's not like the sort of thing where you're obviously right that we're like a year away because we don't know where we are with the virus itself yet. But something so infuriating about this unwillingness, you can see that other countries have gotten some semblance of normal life back because they were willing to eat shit for two months. Yep. And we just can't do it. No, because we love our freedom. We love our freedom freedom to wreck everything. Yeah. My God. (laughs) (laughs) That's a nice note to end on. If That's where we wrap it up. (laughs) The fact that everyone was freaking out about the election and making sure the vote Votes were tallied and all that stuff. Like, it scared me, like voter suppression and and all the shit going on with the mail. But then on the flip side of it, the, I'm like, the fact that people are noticing it and freaking out about it now before it's all happening is is oddly good to me that people are noticing. Like, I just feel like noticing is like 80% of the effort at this moment in time. But yep. I'm wrong. Yeah, no, no, no. I think people I think people with this first debate, they, they got to they gotta look at the – they got to look at the future. If they, they, if they want that, you know, I, I don't know what to say. You know, we can't, we cannot, we cannot tolerate that. This country cannot endure through that again. I mean, we don't, we don't need to go there again. We got to get this solved. And I think people are, people are, people have seen it now. And I think everybody's been affected by, you know, by, you know, by coronavirus, whether it's, you know, economic or just being displaced from family. I mean, all these things, it's just like, come on, put a mask on. How about me, like in my most intimate moments for decades, having to stop and go, oh, wait a minute here. Let me just put this on. It's this thing right. that's going to make it worse for both it's, of us. It's, it's like the difference between that and hanging a piece of cloth on a doorknob before I leave my house. I go, oh, yeah, I got to put this on. That's a whole lot simpler than like sort of deconstructing your emotions at a fragile moment and having to stop to put something on, you know, yep. not for nothing, right? No. Nope. Right. It's like, what the hell? <laughs> Anyways. Been, it, it's been like a, this podcast has been like a Bob Mould song. It's been, it's been heavy and yet liberating all at the same time. And I so hooky. Not, yeah, it's been very hooky. I cannot have been more honored. More thrilled to have spoken to you and Roth. Roth yeah. is here. Too. I'm here. I'm here most weeks, but Bob, yeah. this was amazing, man. Thank you so much. Oh, yeah. thanks, you, thanks, you guys, and thanks for the support. I, 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 I was really, you know, I was just like last night when I after the, you know, going to bed and being upset, and I just sort of was like, okay, tomorrow morning we're doing this thing, so it's going to be really fun because these guys are cool and they get it, and it's cathartic and it's melodic and. Sometimes it's smart, sometimes it's not. But man, it's this is what we do. This is what we're all doing. So Appreciate thank it, man. You. Thank well, you, th- thank you. And Blue Hearts uh, is out now, available everywhere. Distortion, the box set is out October second, and again that spans both Bob's solo career and his time with Sugar, twenty-four CDs and albums, nearly three hundred tracks, and a companion book. So be on the lookout for that as well. The fantastic and legendary Bob Mould. Thank you so so much, and uh, I hope we have you on again. In the after, because there yeah. will be in, in the after. In the after. Thanks, you guys. Right on. Appreciate Thanks, it. dude. Thanks Bye. a million, Bob. Brandon Nix is the producer and engineer. Daisy Rosario is our executive producer. And Citrus chief content officer is Chris Bannon. You can listen to ad-free episodes of The Distraction only on Stitcher Premium. And thanks to us at The Distraction, you can get a free month of Stitcher Premium right now. You just go to stitcherpremium.com and use the promo code DISTRACT. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe wherever it is that you listen. And go subscribe to Defector.com, too. And also, the audiobook of Point B came out this week. It's available right now at Audible. And one more time, Bob Mould's new fantastic album, Blue Hearts, is out everywhere. Records sold. <laughs>